Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, I'm recording this podcast on the 14th of April, 2020. We are still probably towards the end of the coronavirus or the Chinese virus epidemic, pandemic. And I'm still up at the ranch. Actually, I went down to the city, did some work in my shop, planted a garden, and came back up here. My family is up here with me, my daughter and my three grandchildren. So if you hear any (laughs) kids in the background, that's them. Today we're going to be having an interview with Julie Bradley. Julie Bradley is a Escape from the Ordinary and Crossing Pirate Waters, the second book of the story of her and her husband buying a sailboat and sailing out into the Pacific. Now, I have not read these books. I plan on learning about the books and her adventures in the interview. But before we get to that interview, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. Looking for a sewing machine that's both portable and powerful? Look no further than the legendary Sailrite Ultrafeed LSZ-1. Take it to the marina, store it on your boat. The Ultrafeed goes where you go. This high-performing, heavy-duty machine sews both in zigzag and straight stitch. The Ultrafeed can handle your toughest jobs with absolutely zero loss of power or skip stitches. It breezes through up to 10 layers of Sunbrella canvas and 8 layers of Dacron sailcloth. With the most dependable all-metal internal components, the Ultrafeed is a piece of well-engineered machinery that's built to last. Sailrite has been building the Ultrafeed for over 20 years. This tried-and-true powerhouse machine comes with a five-year limited warranty and the best customer service in the industry. The machines are assembled, fine-tuned, and tested at Sailrite's manufacturing facility by a team of highly trained technicians. Every machine is calibrated and tested before it's shipped to guarantee both smooth operation and machine quality. Take your sewing skills to the next level with the Sailrite Ultrafeed LSZ-1 sewing machine. I got a couple emails from uh, my podcast with Don Spink at Blue Waters Insurance, and I'm going to share those with you and make a couple comments. The first one is from Big Ears Teddy He wrote, Hey Franz, I have a question regarding your interview with the boat insurance guy. I believe that he said nobody will insure a boat that's over 40 years old, and you mentioned that whenever you check into a country, the officials always ask to see your insurance papers. So I've been searching for a blue water boat to retire on and sail the world on a modest budget. I've found one that's about 40 plus that I can afford but now I fear that I should not buy it because I can't insure it. Now what I need to know is can I travel around the world in a boat that age if I can't get it insured? Will I not be permitted entry into the countries, their ports, or marinas? Is world cruising now only available to people who can afford newer boats? Ted. Ted, I don't know how to answer that question, but I do know that I would... Before I buy the boat, now that I've talked to Don and realized the difficulty in getting insurance on a 40-year-old boat, if you may recall in the interview, he said you can get it, but it's difficult to find. So I would definitely, before you buy the boat, reach out to a maritime insurance broker and find out that you will be able to insure the boat. Now, I'm speaking from my experience sailing in the Mediterranean. But it is absolutely essential in the Mediterranean that you show insurance documents, both to the marina if you want to get a long-term contract. Uh, In fact, quite often when you pull into the marina just for one night, they want to see your insurance papers. And also the country officials. That seems to be very common. It's probably as important as having your actual boat papers, your documentation or your registration if it's a state-registered boat instead of a U.S. Coast Guard-documented boat. So you definitely need it in the Mediterranean. Now, I don't know about the Pacific. I have a friend, I think I've talked about him, Doug, that sailed from uh, the States down to New Zealand, and he told me he's never had insurance on his boat. Now, I don't know if that means haul insurance or if that's liability insurance. 
my attitude is that if you have a boat, <laughs> that boat is going to be, you know, 9, 10, 20 tons of weight. That's a lot of kinetic energy moving around, and it's very easy to do damage to property and other boats. And just like a car, when you're driving on the streets, you need to be responsible. If you do damage to somebody else's property, you need to be able to show the ability to pay for that damage that you caused. So I look at it as no different than having insurance for your automobile, which is required if you want to drive an automobile. That's just the way I feel about it. You should have in, you should have liability insurance on your boat. Now, like Don said, it's getting awfully hard to get liability insurance alone. There's a business opportunity for somebody who wants to set up a maritime insurance company to offer liability insurance alone. It's not that hard to set up an insurance company. Uh, in America, it's probably more difficult than anywhere else because in, a, in the United States, if you want to set up an insurance company, you have to be licensed in every state that you write a policy. And I don't know how the maritime insurance companies get away from that. Maybe they consider the location of the boat the area that where they need to be licensed. I'd have to talk to Don about that. But there's an opportunity to write liability insurance, uh, set up a business to write liability policies only. Uh, just a thought. And then I got another email from Phil. Phil wrote, Hi, Franz. I really enjoy your podcast and look forward to each one. Your experience and practical approach are very useful. Please keep them coming. I have a question about liability insurance for using marinas. In your experience, how much liability coverage would you advise? Recently, we cruised on our 46-foot Hylus Cutter through the South Pacific, New Zealand, Australia, and Indonesia. Now we are planning to sail into the med and we'll get a quote from Don at Blue Water Insurance. Thanks for all your hard work, Phil. I don't know what the requirements are. I think in most countries it's $2 million liability, but in Italy they have high liability requirements, I think $10 million, but that's the only one. So in my most recent insurance policy, I, know what I, ha- I noted that I had a specific policy for liability for Italy at $10 million, and that it was substantially reduced for the remaining countries. So talk to Don. He'll tell you what you need to have. And I'd like to talk to you about your sailing in the South Pacific. Give me a call sometime. Or actually drop me an email, franz1 at medsailor.com. All right, let's get on to our interview with Julie Bradley. I am on Skype with Julie Bradley. Julie wrote a book, which is actually a bestseller on Amazon. Actually, a couple books. And the first one was Escape from the Ordinary. And it's in the Adventurous Travel section of Amazon. And I'm going to read what it says. Retire early, sell everything, buy a boat 4,000 miles away, and sail around the world. What could go wrong? Meet Glenn and Julie, sailors who follow the dream and discover that reality can be even bigger than imagined. From Force 10 storms in the North Atlantic to the crystal blue waters and native dancers of French Polynesia, Escape from the Ordinary, book one of the Escape series, opens a window to adventures in extraordinary places not found in travel brochures. Now, you wrote this book quite a while ago. Tell us when you bought it, and let's start out at the beginning. How did you end up going on this big adventure? I was in the army and I had been in for, I, I enlisted right after high school. And when I was 40 years old, I was able to retire. And my husband and I had been planning on this for the 10 years that we'd been married. And it was the carrot to some really hard times in the military, some long separations, some, some hardship tours and, uh, hardship assignments. And, Every single day I would fantasize about, I would read my cruising worlds, I would read everything I could to try to keep my dream alive. And when it actually came time to retire, I was really scared. It's like, oh my God, here it is and be careful what you wish for. 
but it, it turned out to be better than I could ever have imagined. There was certainly some really hard times that I don't think that um, I ever anticipated. But <clears throat> whenever you whenever you step off into something that big, that's bound to happen. Well, you bought a pretty darn nice boat. You bought an Emil, didn't you? An Emil, right? A yeah. Super Maramu and. We surprised ourselves at that. My husband, Glenn, he's super handy, and his lifelong hobby had been to – we had a succession of boats, and each boat was going to be the boat. Of course, there was always – I mean, we didn't have that much money, so they were pretty old. Uh, The one – the best old one that we had was 28 years old. And uh, and it was also an Amel, a really old Maramu. And every time we would go sailing, as, as great as the, the Amels are built, you know, a 28-year-old boat, things are going to be – there's there are going to be problems. And we had bought it from someone who hadn't really sailed it. So boats like to be used. And a lot of bad things were happening. Every time we went out sailing on our practice, you know, training, he would spend – so much time he'd come out of the engine compartment all bloody and and uh you know of course if we could have had a new if we could have afforded a new boat we would have wanted it and then when it came time to sell everything and uh you know retire i mean we sold everything our our cars literally everything and uh we had a nice little nest egg there in our house and then we thought we actually talked to someone. We had some. We were on. I was. We we were living in Washington D.C. I was stationed uh, in the D.C. area working in Russia. I would deploy to Russia for nine weeks at a time as a nuclear weapons inspector, and then come back. And during that time, Glenn would have done some major rehab project on the boat. And we'd go out, and you know, it was a cycle of you know, this is not going to be a way that we want to sail around the world. Always having a a broken boat. So we we talked to some really savvy people out on the water one time who had a beautiful brand new Amel Super Maramu and it was so much faster than ours. It was so gorgeous. I just had so so much envy. It's like, oh my God. And but they said that that right now the exchange rate is so, was so fantastic between the dollar and the euro. And it it just seemed an impossible dream. But when we got home, we started doing the research, and we we bought that boat for forty percent off what it would have cost a few years earlier when the exchange rate wasn't that great. So <clears throat> we were able to to buy an Amel on a much smaller budget, and we were it was just timing was everything, and we were so lucky and. We were so grateful. We were just we never never took it for granted. Every day we we said, "Thank God we have this boat." <laughs> now, is Glenn a sailor? By I mean, did he grow up sailing? You know, he grew up in Michigan on the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, and he was a power boater. He went. He was big into to water skiing and power boats, but he always knew in his soul that he wanted to sail. And when he got he was he was in the military and and when he he got out he got a job at Fort Huachuca as in an engineering engineering position and he'd never been on a sailboat in his whole life and he went out to California bought a Catalina 25 put it on a trailer brought it take took it down to the Sea of Cortez and with a couple of books taught himself how to sail and how to, he didn't even really know how how tight to how to tighten the mainsail i mean there's so many details of sailing that he did not re- that you really can't get from a book and it was a couple of years before he had anyone on board who even who who was a real sailor and who gave him some of those you know finesse you know finer points of sailing and i hadn't the only time i'd sailed when when i was in high school i was dating a boy whose family had a sailboat on and I was a lake sailor, and uh, when I got together with Glenn, he he was really the one driving the dream to sail around the world. But I hopped on board pretty quick, and uh, I volunteered to do some – I was an Army officer at the time, and I volunteered to uh, be one of the sailing coaches for the Naval Academy offshore sailing team. 
which taught me a lot, a whole lot. And, uh, and those boats were, were, were gorgeous, you know, big 40 foot sailboats that were always the best of everything. And, you know, made me really want uh, a good boat, a good structural boat that had, you know, made me really appreciate and value uh, fine equipment. Well, let's start with the uh, purchasing process. So you combed through, you, how did you, how did you limit it down to an ML just because of your previous MLs that you'd had? Well, as it's so funny because everybody who reads Escape for the Ordinary and Crossing Pirate Waters says, oh, my God, you have such an incredible sense of adventure. But on one hand, yes. On the other hand, in the military, I learned that my job, you know, for over 20 years, my job was to keep everybody safe and to try to eliminate as many unpredictable variables as possible. And so there was there was two sides of me that, you know, the 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 extreme the person who had gotten hooked on adventure basically in the military and who who grew up on, you know, my father's World War Two stories and uh, of Burma and China and India and in monkeys in the jungle. So I, I had the genes for it, but yet I had the training to be super careful and once again, you know, I knew that we weren't going to have anybody, you know, I wasn't going to have the, the full force and power of the U.S. military at our back when we were out there. So we wanted to dress for success. We wanted the very, I mean, the, the watertight bulkheads of the ML, I mean, basically I figured, okay, I'd read so many scary articles in, in Cruising World and Ocean Navigator about, you know, these impacts with floating containers or getting hulled by a reef in the middle of nowhere. And, uh, and those really sat with me a lot. And I thought, well, if we have watertight bulkheads, even if we get hulled or, you know, the, the boat will float, even if two of the compart the three main compartments are get hulled, you know, at least we can float until we get picked up by, I mean, I, I worst case, I'm, you know, my, uh, you know, I was like miss worst case scenario for, for for most of our circumnavigation, <laughs> I mean, really, I I, I guess that uh, some of that probably comes out in the book, but not all of it does, of course, you know. Well, let's talk about you bought the boat in France. Then where is it built in France? It's built in La Rochelle. La Rochelle. I highly recommend anyone listening when you go to France, find a way to go to La Rochelle. It is the most most amazing medieval walled city, so quaint, so sweet, totally off the normal beaten path of tourism in France. And so, so many, it is the center of boat building in France, in Europe, in my opinion. Uh, Genot is built there. Peugeot built, is built there. Um, of course, you know, a mill and they're all on the same street. It's amazing. There's some other really big, I, I can't think of it right. Benito. I mean, there, there's some really well-regarded and, and by the way that some of the versions of these internationally sold boats that are built in France are, are built to different construction methods than the ones built in the States. Some of the, some of these bigger, uh, they call them chantier. Some of these bigger boat building operations have boat building facilities of the States as well, but they have the French merchant marine standards are required uh, by, by the French government. And uh, it's, it's certainly worth a trip for anyone to go tour uh, any of those boat builders. But I would, you know, I would, personally highly recommend trying to get into the ML boat building factory and they are happy to give tours. Okay. So I'm zoomed in. This is what I do when I'm doing an interview. I always zoom in on the area and I've been to Mont St. Michel. Is that, that's fairly close to La Rochelle, isn't it? You know, it is. And amazingly, we have not been there. <laughs> I, I really want to go so badly. How is that? How did you like it? Well, it was so many years ago. Oh, it was great. I mean, it was it was fun to actually go out uh, at low tide and, and walk out to the island. Mud flat that you'd gone by be covered with water. It's pretty cool. It's pretty it's it was a long time ago before we started sailing in the Mediterranean. So it was fun. It was it was worth visiting. I'm trying to think of where it is. Actually, no, it's a bit north of where you're at. 
No, I, I think it's in Normandy. I think it's on the Normandy yeah, coast, but I'm not sure. Yeah, near Saint Malo is where it's at. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, Franz, have you sailed in the Bay of Biscay? No, I never have, but I've looked at some weather patterns in the Bay of Biscay, and I say, well, that's why they get embayed there. <laughs> oh my God, it's horrible! It is so famously horrible. It is unfreaking believable. The because of the way the ocean floor shoals up there. It is the the steepest, choppiest waves, and it's it is so hard to get out of the bay because you know prevailing westerly winds and south you know southwest southwest you freaking cannot get out of there in a storm without risking your life. It is so hard. It with you know two people tag endless tacking, tacking, tacking. Uh, we had a four day storm right away and. You know, Mother Nature slapped us down right out of the gate, and it was a really, really good lesson. I mean, I really go into that in depth in Escape from the Ordinary, and uh, <laughs> it, it pretty much got got our attention. All right, so let's let's go back in time. When did you start your adventure? What year was that? Uh, we sold everything and picked the boat up in December of 97. 97, okay, all right. That was the year I sailed across the Atlantic. So you were heading out sailing about the same time I was heading out sailing. Well, that was a La Nina year. Do you do you remember that? I just remember it was pretty lousy weather to the Azores. Yeah, <laughs> it was. It's, it's it was a tough. It was a tough. A tough time. And of course, we picked ours up and we picked it up in, at Christmas time because we couldn't afford the really super expensive marinas. Even at the at the the good exchange rate, we were just blown away by the expense of sailing in Europe. It's uh, it's it's a lot more elitist kind of pursuit there, and uh, yeah, it was so expensive that we and we'd spent much more money. Even though the ML comes really well equipped, we still had to buy major things and. And uh, our, our, our piggy bank was, was scraping the bottom, and uh, we had to charge everything and hope that our, our retirement pensions got into the kitty soon enough. I mean, it was just this self-licking ice cream cone of, you know, every time we would buy something, we would realize we needed one more big thing, one more big thing, one more big thing. And, and even though we, we had already had all this equipment on, on the previous – our previous Amel Marimu, but when we sold it, one of the requirements was it was sold as is, because we had a really well out, outfit for offshore cruising. And we said, well, you know, how expensive can it really be? But buying everything at one time, it can be very expensive. Yes, yes. So what was your initial plan? Was it to do any sailing in the Mediterranean or head straight across the Atlantic? And in December, well, I mean, you, you got to get out of there and go somewhere. You're not going to be sailing that much in the in the winter, are you? Well, it was Christmas. Yeah. And like I said, we we retired. We'd already sold. I mean, we basically had, had painted ourselves into a corner. <laughs> we, we had no choice. We had nowhere to live. We had we had no cars. We had nothing. I mean, we were just leaning so far forward. We kind of we kind of tilted, you know, tilted a, a little too forward there and, and tripped and. We uh, we were basically bound to leave, and there was it wasn't very pleasant in the med during the winter anyway. And, and also, we we wanted to get someplace warm. And at the time, I was really pushing to cruise the med because you know I just I had I just really wanted to do that. And uh, my husband said, "Well, that's going to be our carrot. This is going to be something that's going to drive us forward. When, you know, when the towing going gets tough out there, you know, we'll 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 know that we'll we'll always have the med in front of us. You know, so I said I I bought into that. Well, that made sense. So we, you know, we basically sailed south till the butter melted and uh, turned right and." got to the Caribbean and uh, anyway it's it's a lot more detailed as to exactly what all happened after, you know the big storm and the the Atlantic crossing and and you know we we uh, we ended up going up the east coast of the United States all the way to Canada and that was fabulous and and uh, so, so then we went we got to do the Caribbean twice that way and and it was it was the way to go, of course. I mean, if you're going to sail around the world, you might as well start out with an ocean crossing as a sea trial for your brand new boat. 
not. (laughs) I did an interview with Jack Andrews, and he just did the Atlantic crossing this year from uh, the Canary Islands. And he said, let me tell you, Franz, I see these people here all, all day long that they just went and bought a brand-new boat, and they brought it down here, and they're getting ready to cross, and it is not ready. The boats are not ready. You've got to do a sea trial. He said, I'm sure glad that we spent two years sailing the med working out the kinks before we tried to cross. So you went straight across without testing the boat out first then, huh? Well, we did have a pretty good test from the Bay of Biscay down to – uh, the Canary Islands. I mean, we had a force ten storm fronts. It was for, read read my book. It was <laughs> it was unbelievable, and uh, we it was it was it was a it was called a Christmas storm. I mean, it's in the record books. We had a, we had a, a large container ship break in two in the ocean not far offshore from where we were. The so the Air Force of Sun Country, and it almost sounded like Portuguese being spoken on the radio, was shooting munitions at the containers that fell off the ship. I mean, it was it was beyond what anybody should think about happening for their first week on their brand new boat on the sea trial. And thank thank God we had an ML because that boat was so sturdy. I mean, we we were falling off 40, 50 foot waves. I mean. It was unbelievable. I mean, it, it's so hard to even. It, it it was it was terrible. I mean, we we didn't think we were going to make it, and it was totally bad judgment. But we did it. We lived through it. And no, I don't advise anyone to do what we did. But there were there were some things that happened, like the Ananaba. You know, there were some things that flew off the boat. I mean, from the impact of falling down these big waves and, uh, but the boat did not break up. And I, now I understood when we were out there, I thought, Oh my God, these, these stories about people who like just disappear from the ocean. And I understood that if you don't have a sturdy boat, that boat will break up in a storm like that. And, uh, and so we made it and there were some things wrong with that boat. And, we contacted Amel, you know, some things that happened, not, no major, major things, but, you know, it was a brand new boat and some things had gotten dislodged or, you know, some, some, they flew someone down from France to the Canary Islands to fix everything that broke. They replaced parts. They brought things. I mean, can you imagine that kind of customer service? No, that's, uh, that's what they're known for though, isn't it? It is. It is. And that's why, you know, at the time Hardly anybody at that time knew about Amels. They had not been discovered by the rest of the world. They they were only producing thirty a year, and uh, and it's not a custom boat. It is it is a, you know they won't alter their boat. I mean, dealing with the Amel factory is it can either go like beautifully easy or very difficult. Like if you start telling them what you want, that will be the hard way. If you say, give me the perfectly designed boat that you have and and I'll just pick it up when it's ready, then that's going to be really smooth and lovely. And and there's a reason why they do everything that they do. And there's so many tiny little features that I could go on and on and on about. But that's why there's a really dedicated following. It's, you know, some people call it a cult. And they're very, cl- you know, the owners are very close. They have a very tight-knit uh bulletin board contact system it's it's really it's pretty amazing and and there's a reason for that all right so you made it to to the caribbean and then uh then you did the intercoastal waterway or did you go outside to go north then uh well that's also an escape from the ordinary uh we know we're going to cover what's an escape from the ordinary we're giving people a taste of why they should go buy your book and read more about it okay well they we wanted, you know, I wanted to go up the, the, the intercoastal waterway because even though I had been all over the world in the military, uh, I just really didn't know the East Coast that well. I hadn't been to all these quaint little towns, these little river. I just wanted to explore that part of America. But uh, Glenn is much more of a hardcore sailor, and he wanted to go up uh, the Gulf Stream. He wanted to go offshore. And there was, at first, I, you know, I said, oh, no, I want to do, but then I looked at the, the chart, and of course, our mast was too tall for many of the bridges. So we kind of did a leapfrog. We'd go out and then in, out and in, out and in. And, uh, and it was fine. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm 
I love to sail too. It's just that, you know, there's a trade-off for making time. And we only did have, to go up to New England, we did, you know, have a, we were going to have a short season up there. So it did make, so we did a little bit of leapfrogging in and out, in and out, especially in the Carolinas. We really enjoyed the Carolinas and the intercoastal waterway. And then uh, eventually we, we leapfrogged out up to Maine and uh, New York and New England. Just loved, loved it. Loved. And then when we came back, we went out to Bermuda and we got caught in Hurricane Mitch. I know it sounds like we're pretty hapless, doesn't it? But nobody could have predicted. I mean, Hurricane Mitch, now that really wasn't our fault. I'm, I'm willing to take fault for a lot, but not that one, you know. Because <laughs> I don't know if you recall, Hurricane Mitch did a switcheroo. It was down in the Central America, and then it it uh, it died as a hurricane, and then it reformed. And uh, we were, thankfully, we were at anchor in St. George Harbor when it hit. We had just made it in. We, we just poured on all the sail we could. And, but there were some, some lives lost, and from a, a rally that left from Newport. So, yeah, that was, that was how we, you know, our, our first year was, was pretty exciting, really. So across the Atlantic, up, up the East Coast, back down the East Coast, and uh, now you're coming into the hurricane season, or have you escaped the hurricane season for the next year? What did you do for the hurricane season? Well, we wanted to, our, our, insurance and that's a whole nother story uh mandated that we get below 13 degree latitude and we went down to we were down in in trinidad but it it seemed that the the caribbean just seemed too too much alike to us i mean there's really not people said well how come you don't have that many interesting stories from the caribbean i i included the ones that i thought were the most so much of the islands down there were so much the same to us, and uh, and the interaction was more about other cruisers, other sailors than the natives or the local population. And because I think that it's just sort of you know overexposure of sailors are really not that interested in interaction. They weren't with us, and you know it, mileage varies on that comment. Sometimes they were lovely, and you know sometimes just it was like we were just another you know, other tourists for them. So we went, we wanted to get someplace that we could have some real adventures. And so we decided to, to go to Venezuela for the, uh, for the hurricane season. And we stayed in, uh, in Puerto La Cruz, which is east of Caracas. And we had some amazing, amazing adventures in the Sabana, the Gran Sabana, and uh, visiting some really remote areas and doing some exciting things. And we also had some uh, personal challenges there. Some, some really, some really scary things happened too. So I don't want to do too many spoiler things for the book, but one of the biggest, biggest scary things happened there in Venezuela. Did you try going up the Orinoco river? Any, any, no, we did not. We okay. did. We basically uh, the adventures that we had there. Well, we did go out to Los Roques and Los Aves and Margarita, uh, uh, Ila Margarita, but the biggest adventures we had there were land based because it is an increase. The country is totally not set up for tourism, not on any level. <laughs> so every time you leave the you know, there there was a lot of danger to sailboats there. Uh, we we would hear, you know, we were in a marina, and we would hear sailboats at anchor getting boarded. You know, people on the radio. We've got you know, you know people are boarding with guns and knives, and you know, and people got hit over the head. I mean, it was a dangerous place. It was a dangerous place then, and now it would be unthinkable, really. Uh, but in any case, it was it was it was. I think it just really sparked our our understanding that the further you get off the beaten track, you know, the more, the more memorable, the more authentic, the more intense the experience. And that set the tone for the whole rest of our, you know, the whole rest of our eight year circumnavigation. Now they really don't have that many yacht marinas in Venezuela. I've, I've been to Venezuela one time with a friend and that was before, well, that was right around, it might have been a year or two well, before 97 or a year or two after 97. But I've been to Venezuela mm-hmm. one time, and I've been along that yeah, I think, course. And I don't never saw that many marinas there. Well, there, there, there aren't 
there aren't a lot. I mean, it's not a cultural thing there. Uh, we were in Puerto La Cruz. There, there was a number to choose from, and the exchange rate was so. I think I, I is something. I'm pretty sure that diesel fuel was 18 cents a gallon at the time. I mean, it was a pretty good exchange rate. And I also remember that every single Venezuelan that we got to know used to talk about the great times when the Bolivar was so valuable and worth so much and they were respected currency and they would fly to Miami just to go shopping. And, you know, they would they all had their their stories about the glory days of Venezuela. And and Chavez was in power at the time and he'd just been elected and it it hadn't quite deteriorated to the level that, you know, the the hard times that those those people are having right now. Yeah, but it did. uh, One thing about Venezuela is they have the best weather in the world. The weather down there is just unbelievable. It's perpetual spring weather, at least in Caracas, it seemed like. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So did you? Uh, so so you you stayed down there, and you during the winter you sailed a bunch down there, or during the hurricane season, which I guess is during the summer more than anything else. You sailed a lot down along the along the coast of Venezuela. No, we did not because it was so dangerous. I mean, even we we basically stayed in Puerto La Cruz and did all of our adventuring on land. And then when we, because of the bad thing that happened, we wanted to pretty much get out of Venezuela as fast as we could. So we we ended up going to uh, Margarita for a big provisioning, Los Aves and Los Roques. We were still technically in, in Venezuela, but... Um, Everyone who's been there will will know how how remote and lovely those those uh, those islands are. And and then from there we went to Bonaire and we and we we filled out the rest of our hurricane season in Bonaire and did lots of great diving. Got to know a lot of really really wonderful cruisers that we're still in contact with, and uh, got 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 pretty proficient i i got a lot more confidence in my 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 diving and and uh glenn got really hooked on uh on free diving there and anyway, anyway we really enjoyed bonaire and then from there we did uh curacao and then colombia we went into cartagena another really great adventure there and uh they were having very serious hard times there too uh but it, that was more drug related and uh, yeah, that was. In fact, the owner of the marina at the time was was uh, in jail, and, and that that was kind of a funny story. Well, you know, maybe not so funny for him, but you know, one of the one of the the pastimes of all the sailors was to go visit the guy in jail. <laughs> I was like, I know, it was really weird. It was a really weird place, sort of surreal. I mean, you could make a totally make a uh, a movie out of just that that situation there at the marina it was and it was pretty interesting well right now colombia is sort of a up-and-coming country but back then it was uh, a lot of crime when you were visiting it so it was was, a lot of people were getting kidnapped Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, i remember reading a book about walking down the street and getting pickpocketed and how the pickpockets were the best pickpockets in the world in colombia but uh yeah, that was Tristan Jones. Did you ever read the book uh, by Tristan Jones? Yes, I did. Yeah. I did, and I don't know. I think that uh, that there are that there are pickpockets, you know, and all over the. It's, it's amazing. I mean, Glenn got his his pocket picked. It's <laughs> kind of funny sound, but I mean, by someone he had it, and I think we were in. Uh, I think we were in. Santiago and Chile. I mean, these pickpockets—they're—they're they're pretty proficient. If they would—if they would dedicate that much time to some really useful endeavor, they would be brain surgeons because <laughs> they're amazing. <laughs> okay, so so from from Colombia, where did you go? Did you spend some time in Belize? And and what was your what was your goal? Did you have a say? Did you have a goal of say we're going to sail for so many years, and then at some point in time we're going to sell the boat and move back to land or did you just have an open-end idea of we'll keep doing it as long as it's fun what was your what was your initial plan well at the time we felt like 
we would need to go back to work in order to live on land. I mean, it had, we had been living in a very high cost area of DC and, and we felt like, well, we would probably need to go back to work. We looked upon this as a, a you know, a three year circumnavigation and, uh, we were moving, uh, you know, a little smartly there initially. Uh, but then we realized that it was really once we got to, to the Pacific that we realized that our life was never going to get any better than that. It was too fantastic. And we said, well, you know, we can always, you know, live on the boat. I mean, we, we made, we made some big course changes during our circumnavigation and it, it ended up taking eight years and we never looked back. And, you know, by the way, we never went back to tr- traditional work after that. I mean, our life, we learned that the simpler our life is, the happier we are. And now we live in a, we live comfortably off of our pensions and we live in a log cabin in the woods. And, uh, and right now during the COVID-19 isolation, before this all started, I told Glenn, I said, you know, we only had a few hundred square foot feet on our, on our boat and we lived happily on that. And now the, the square footage we have in our small cabin is like a mega yacht comparison. <laughs> so let's just, you know, this is like an ocean passage for us. This is a time to write and read and, you know, do all these things, meditate, garden, do all these things that that we're so well equipped to do after our, our life and, and provisioning. I mean, I know how to make eggs last for three months. <laughs> you know, what a skill. <laughs> All right. So when did you go through the Panama Canal? Was that two years after you started then? We went, we were in the Panama Canal. Uh, we, we actually parked our boat in the Panama Canal in Pedro Miguel uh, boatyard. Uh, there's a, a boatyard there that used to be a yacht club of, from the U.S. military. And we were there in 2000 during the during the handover to the Panamanian government. So there were some, some military still there and, and uh, basically uh, very little left. And we, it was too early to go to the Galapagos. So uh, we, we decided, and they, and we said, why don't we use this as a great opportunity to park the boat and do some traveling in South America? We didn't want to take our boat down to Ecuador, Chile, uh, we were more interested in exploring more of the Pacifics at the time. I mean, if we were, if we'd known that we were going to have that much of an extended cruise, we might have done that because everyone who went there loved it so much. I mean, on the other hand, everybody who went there loved it so much that they actually like stayed in Ecuador that the people that we knew, we ended up getting emails from saying, you know, I just bought a hundred acres right on the ocean here. And Love it, you know, because I guess it is just a fantastic place, and uh, they loved Americans, and um, and the exchange rate was great. And the exchange rate can make such a difference in your enjoyment of an area when you don't ever have to, if you're on a fixed income or, you know, a limited income, and you don't have uh, that much money to spend. And you can free up, you can stay in a marina, you can travel, eat out. I mean, it just makes a lot of difference. And, and it did in our enjoyment, really super expensive areas. I always felt, you know, there was kind of a a weight on me that always kind of double checking to make sure that everything was going to work out well financially. So you did some land-based travel. How far south did you get then? Uh, we went to um, Chile, Peru. We hiked the Inca Trail. Oh wow! Okay, so you're, uh, we, we're talking yeah, all we, of we South had a, America. Yeah, we had a great time. Then. Okay, <laughs> so so you you spent quite a bit of time. You rented a car. Or did you buy a car and drive? Oh, uh, not in South America. We didn't. We didn't buy a car. We we felt we were. Glenn's not as keen on public transportation as I am, but I like I like to take. The other thing is that in South America, on all the South America countries we've been, they have the most deluxe buses, overnight buses. I mean, they they even have like first class lounges in the bus stations and they have attendants with ties and circulating with snacks and ordering meals. It's your own private television. It's pretty amazing, really. And some of them are double deckers, so you can really look out and see the scenery. So... We did a lot of traveling by public transportation. I mean, with with mixed results. I mean, sometimes it was a little too intense. Uh, I think I liked it better than Glenn did. And for some reason, they crank up the air conditioning really cold, and it, it was just 
Uh, it wasn't always ideal, but it, it once again, it deepened the experience. <laughs> it deepened the experience. Okay, so that's a good way of saying it. <laughs> I always say your most uh, memorable experiences come from your mo- most uncomfortable situations. So, yeah, it deepened the experience. That's a good way of saying it. <laughs> okay, so you did it by public transportation then. Okay. We did, we did. Mm-hmm. All right. So how long how long did you spend doing land based travel? Month, two months, three months? Um, probably probably a month and a half, maybe maybe a little more. And then and we also did Costa Rica and Panama. I love Panama. Panama is is so much more than the canal. The I I I personally uh, I'm sure it has a lot more to do with um, with where we went in Costa Rica. But my preference is for Panama which a lot of people find surprising, but I found that it was, uh, when, once you got out of the, of Panama city, uh, there was, you know, uh, Los, uh, God, Boca, Boca del Torres. I mean, so many amazing places on the, 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 the Caribbean side and also Las Perlas, the Las Perlas islands on the Pacific side. So it was, we, we found a lot to like about Panama. Okay. So now the marina you were at was that was that on the Pacific or the Caribbean side of Panama? What the boatyard? Yeah, the boatyard. Oh, that's right inside the lock. I mean, you are you are oh, really okay. Uh, I mean, we had to leave. We could have stayed on our boat, but it, it was it, it was it was turbulent <laughs> in every single way you could imagine. The those very strong tugboats, the same tugboats that you know move you around within the locks, are moving gigantic, gigantic Panamax ships right in front of you. And when we pulled into the the yacht, the, they call it the San Pedro Miguel Yacht Club, and it is definitely not anything that I mean. Just just do a just do a search on the internet for a San Pedro Miguel Yacht Club and see what that thing's like. There's big empty containers all over the place. They had people living in the containers, a lot of Colombian refugees. It was it was an interesting time there too. They sold uh, beer for, um, I think it was 50 cents out of vending machines in the Yacht Club. They had, they had somebody there cooking. You could buy lunch for a dollar with your 50 cent beer. It was... People were coming. It was a really. We also have some really good friends that we made there, sailing friends that we're still in contact with. I mean, these were. It was very special. I mean, even while we were there, we realized we are never going to forget this place, you know. But we could not hang out on our boat without. I mean, you got waken up every half hour by some major tugboat, you know, moving your boat around, you know, four or five feet on its on its. Uh, on its mooring and, you know, the, the gangplank falling in the water because your boat gets moved so much by the turbulence. Yeah, it was, you know, it's, it's, it's a place you want to leave your boat safely, but leave because you just couldn't stand the, the environment. Okay. So it was really a boat yard and not really a, a marina. Right. Okay. Yeah, it wasn't even really a boat yard. I mean, if you had any work done there, you had to do it yourself, you know. Okay. All right. So in, during this time, I guess you wanted to go visit the Galapagos. And what was the timing to visit the Galapagos then? You know, I'm not really sure if I, I'm sure whatever I said, I mean, I would be wrong. I, I, I just don't, I don't think it's whatever the right time is to leave when the, when the trade winds set in, that's when that, you know, we really learned our lesson, you know, uh, leaving so impulsively and recklessly from the Bay of Biscay. And Glenn became, I, I mean, a real, really, really excellent weather forecaster. And the, our whole thing was, you know, we're going to leave when the trade winds set in. And we weren't driven by time. We weren't driven by date. It was like, well, we, we need we need to have reliable winds to get there. So, And we didn't really know what we were going to have as far as, uh, you know, when you – if you haven't been to the Galapagos and and all you know about it is what you've seen on National Geographic or read in you know about Darwin, you think it's this little these little tiny remote islands without anything. But actually, it was quite easy to provision there, and uh, it was a lot more developed than we imagined. Okay. 
when I talk, I'm always zooming in on Google Earth and and panning around at the areas. So so when you did finally head off to uh, the Galapagos, did you did you uh, do any stops at the islands along the way, or did you just go ahead straight to the Galapagos? Oh well, we left from the Los Perlas Islands and okay. went straight to the Galapagos. When you say islands, what which That's islands? That's the ones I was ta- looking at. I was just looking at the Los Perlas Islands. I was thought, oh, you might. Yeah, have we stayed in Los Perlas for a couple of weeks. Okay, a lot of anchorages around there. In in the Galapagos. In the Los Perlas. Oh yeah, that's a fantastic. Uh, I mean, just every single place that we were at, we could have stayed months there. And and in Las Perlas, there was a really tight um, community on shore that a lot of Europeans. In fact, the Shah of Iran was living there, uh, and his family. Uh, they probably bought a whole island. I don't know, but there were a lot of famous people who were living in the Las Perlas, and their lives were were pretty boring. So they would have big parties at their house. Would invite the sailors. They would send one of their people, you know, down to the water to invite sailors up to their house for a party and. It was really interesting. It's sort of like, you know, to go from the San Pedro boat club or whatever it was to, you know, the 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 bosom of high society in the Las Perlas was pretty strange, really. Well, there's a lot of islands there. Which ones are you talking about? The, I mean, uh, you know, I, I, I don't okay. have That's I don't right. have an atlas or Google Earth up in front of me, but uh, but. I'm sure that if any any sailor at anchor there could tell you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, how many how much time did you spend in the Galapagos? We stayed the maximum amount of our, our visa. We were really lucky. Uh, we were we were lucky and not so smart at the same time. We we pulled into I don't even remember where we. I'd have to look at my journal to remember where we made landfall, but uh, it was not. It wasn't Academy Bay. It was some smaller island, and the immigration guy was super nice, and he gave us a week longer than they usually give sailors and uh, didn't didn't force us to have a guide on board. And at the time, we thought that was a good thing, but in retrospect, the only thing that we had was a Lonely Planet guide to the Galapagos, and it it, it – it covered a lot, but we really needed a naturalist on board, and we could have hired one there, but uh, we were so used to our privacy, and it was a small boat, and, and I think we were also a little embarrassed because, you know, we really didn't even know how how much to pay this guy or how, you know, how much to tip. I mean, we, we, we our lives had not been that, um, you know, that... I don't know. It seemed like a thing that somebody on a, you know, a, a bigger, like a, a yacht, a mega yacht would kind of thing they would do, like hire your own onboard naturalist. So we just weren't thinking, we we just weren't thinking right. And uh, we probably missed a lot in the Galapagos. It's the one place that, it's one of the few places that I really would love to go back and not even on our own boat, you know, just get on a boat with a naturalist to, to learn all we could. You know, I would love that. Okay. Yeah, it's always been one of those places that I've been curious about, but never that enamored with. But after talking to several people, it sounds like some place that should not be missed. It, it it was it was fantastic enough, even with our limited information. <clears throat> but like like for example, I remember we would, we would anchor in this one this <clears throat> this one island, and and I said, Glenn, let's go to that island where they have penguins." And he said, "Well, I think you're swimming with them." And and they just didn't look like the the emperor penguins, you know, from the Antarctic. They were just different. They're, they look kind of ducky, <laughs> you know. But I didn't even realize it because I didn't have that, you know, that that depth of knowledge, you know, or or access, to, you know, to an expert. That would have been nice to have a naturalist on board. So from the Galapagos, let's hop across the Pacific. Then, where was your next stop? Well, the Marquesa Islands, the longest passage possible when you cross the Pacific without without uh, encountering any any islands or any place to stop. It was we made our first landfall at Fatuhiva and which is which is arguably the most gorgeous anchorage in the whole world. And I would be one of the ones that would argue for it. <laughs> <laughs> so 
did you stay there long? Um, you know, I, I'd have to look at my journal. I suspect we stayed there a week and then we, uh, we needed to, to, um, to move on. There were, you know, basically when you get to French islands, the French possessions, you have to put up a bond and you're limited in how long you could stay. And, uh, um, so we we needed we we knew that we had a limited amount of time in French Polynesia, and we could have stayed at any one of those anchorages for for weeks or months or you know I think we probably stayed a little over a week and did a lot of hiking and we met a great fantastic contact there this French couple who lived on their boat and they had sailed around the world three times, <clears throat> and the name of their boat was uh, La Cigale, which means the grasshopper. And and it was a cute play on the you know the ant and the grasshopper fable where uh, the grasshopper is always playing and the ants doing all the diligent uh, saving and preparing and they you know they they had been able because he was a French engineer he'd been able they'd been able to hop from island to island and he got part time jobs working for the French government and all these French possessions around the world and. Uh, yeah, they had they had definitely lived the grasshopper life for most of their adult <laughs> life. It was fantastic. They were super helpful to us. Took us inland. They had so many friends. Introduced us to people. We we met a lot of the natives. Um, we went to a big Easter celebration. They're very Catholic there, and uh, it was beautiful singing. It was just gorgeous. It was, you know, it was one of our our most interesting contacts, and and I felt like. I was really grateful that they were the first people we met in French Polynesia. It was really helpful. Okay. Julie, we've been talking quite a while, and I don't want to miss the highlights of your story, but I don't want to go into minute detail of every place you went. But when you think back and when you think of your book, what should we make sure we don't miss uh, and talk about in this interview from here on out? Mm. The thing that I would most like, I mean, if sailors who are listening to this, they they pretty much know a lot about what we've already talked about. But even though everybody says just whatever it takes to do it, just do it. I mean, I know it sounds trite, but there's just nothing in life that will ever equate or come close to a life of living on a sailboat, sailing around the world, or you don't even need to do that just regionally. It's, it's all great. It's just, you look at the world differently. You live more in the moment. You're closer to nature. Um, you have time to, you know, you have time to read, you have time to reflect, you have time to write, you have the time to learn how to play guitar. You have time to, to cook slowly. You have time to really live your life in a deep and meaningful way and I, I tried to, to get that message across in both of my books through the depth of experiences that we had to show that, no, this is not, you know, this is not something you can do, you know, with traditional traveling. You, you have to get under the skin of a place. You have to come in through the back door with your dirty laundry and, and your empty pantry and, and, you you have to you have to immerse yourself like like a sailor does in order to really be there <laughs> you know when i do land based travel i find myself wanting to go to the markets because i'm always thinking i need to provision i need to provision <laughs> i always like to go to the markets because that's what we do when we're on our sailboat we're looking for well we got to stock up where we're going to go provision where are the local markets and and uh, even when i'm and then i'm disappointed because i can't buy anything and take it back to my hotel room (laughs) oh i love to go to grocery stores glenn you know especially in developing countries we've been doing a lot of uh, international disaster response work with the red cross and uh, and one of the first things i always do you know when we're anywhere that has an operating to me going to the the market the outdoor markets the indoor markets you know what a you know what a way to really experience a place and of course yeah we're we're there eating our mres or whatever but 
it, it allows you to, to really see a place from a new angle. And, and uh, yeah, I think that that is so important to, to see how the locals live, to, to have a way to come in contact with people who aren't normally in the tourism or travel industry. And that's, you know, and that is, and obviously you feel the same way. So when you, when you finally um, decided to sell the boat, what was the motivation to get off the boat and move back to land? What happened? What was uh, what was okay. the end story? Well, I don't really want that's a real spoiler for crossing ah, pirate waters. Okay, okay. And uh, I don't really want to go into that. Uh, and and but there was, you know, one. Well, actually, two big big things that happened. Um, and and timing is everything. You know, as you know, timing is everything. And the other thing is that, um, well. It, a time for everything. I mean, eight years. We we would have had to go around again. And the med. I mean, you sail the med. I mean, everybody's different. You know, experiences there are different. But after this, after the after the Pacific, and after all the all the trials and uh, real hell we went through in the Gulf of Aden, the Red Sea. Uh, I felt like the med should have been something that I enjoyed more than I did. I didn't dislike it, but as far as going from harbor to harbor, I mean, that wasn't the reason why we, we sold the boat. But uh, I will also say that when we went, got ready to sell the boat, I mean, of course, my husband is super fastidious. We're very tidy people, our military backgrounds and his engineering. So we had people standing on the dock ready to give us what we were our asking price and we had one person try to outbid our asking price. So keeping your boat in great shape and buying a great boat to begin with, you know, really paid big dividends for us. You know, I mean, we, yes, we did, we did lose some money on the, it wasn't, we didn't get back what we paid for it, but, um, you know, it was, it, it gave us enough money to, you know, to buy a, to cabin and, and, you know, so basically, we don't. We have no regrets whatsoever about sinking our whole nest egg into a really great, a great boat. All right. We will put links up to your books on Amazon, and I will copy some of the information over from the uh, the outline in Amazon for the show notes. And if you have anything else that I should add to the show notes, such as your contact information, if you want people to be able to contact you, let me know. Okay. Okay, well, I, I have a website, uh, juliebradleyauthor.com, and I have a lot more articles on there that I, with eight years of, of incredible experiences, I could not fit them all in my books. And I do have people sign up, uh, but, and my Audible book uh, is out for the first book, but it'll be out shortly for the second book and have a fantastic reader. She's so fantastic. I wish I, wish I had her voice. <laughs> She's me, only better. So, all right. Well, thanks, Franz. This has been fun. And uh, our best, Glenn Glenn and and I uh, love our readers and our best to everyone out there. And don't don't hesitate. Go sailing. All right. Thank you, Julie. Okay. Thank you, Franz. Bye-bye. Bye. I'm going to try to enlist your help in keeping this podcast going. I've been producing this podcast since January 23rd, 2012, and it's been a labor of love and (laughs) for the most part, a non-monetized labor of love. And I need some sponsors. So if you are interested in helping me keep this podcast going, I would like to encourage you to think about and perhaps recommend companies or people who you think might be sponsors of this podcast. And let me give you a little bit of information which would help bolster the argument that they should sponsor this podcast. This podcast has been in continuous production since January 23rd, 2012. It's the oldest continuously running sailing podcast out of the 500,000 plus podcasts available in the iTunes directory. So far, there's been more than 425,000 downloads of this podcast. This podcast reaches a worldwide audience, the top countries of the United States, and then Great Britain, and then following that, Australia. So primarily the English language countries. 
56% of our listeners are 45 to 54 years old. And 43.3% of our listeners are 55 to 64 years old. So this is a mature, affluent listener audience. 68.1% are men and 38.2% are women. This is a very strong community. I get quite a few emails from listeners and I try to engage with the listeners and get people on that they want me to interview. So if you write me a letter and you say, hey, you might want to talk to this person, I always try to reach out to the person you suggest and try to get them on for a podcast. So it's a, it's a fairly tight community. I consider my listeners my friends. So who should be interested in sponsoring this podcast? Well, this target market is a highly affluent boating community. And in 2016, the recreational boating market in the United States alone amounted to $36 billion. So people or companies who should consider sponsoring this podcast would be yacht charter companies, water sports apparel companies, boat equipment manufacturers, boat safety equipment suppliers, sailmakers, boat accessories such as eyeglasses, hats, and so forth, boat builders, and travel agencies. And anybody that's trying to market to this very specific niche community. I have more information available at the website, and I'm willing to talk and meet with anybody personally that's interested in being a sponsor for this podcast. Just write me, franz1 at medsailor.com, and I would really appreciate your help in keeping this podcast going. The website is www.medsailor.com or simply medsailor.com, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. Thanks. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing.